Hello and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview today. Um, I have on the pod Dr. Ricardo Costa for the second time, and I am sure you will find this interview just as interesting and valuable as um, his first interview, which was a long time ago, right at the beginning of the early days of the, the pod. So go back and have a look, search through. There's lots of really good podcasts. Um, have a look. And so um, Dr. Costa works in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food, Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences at Monash University, um, researching sports dietetics and extreme physiology. So he knows what he's talking about when um, talking about nutrition for endurance athletes. And he comes on the pod to talk about a research paper that was just uh, published, done in collaboration with the AIS, assessing the impact of the ketogenic low-carb, high-fat diet on the gut health of elite endurance, ultra-endurance athletes. And um, he found that the results were quite concerning and wanted to share his concerns with the ultra community. So please um, do, you know, spread this pod far and wide, let people know, um, because it's really important stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. It's really fascinating. I, I always um, get so much, well, the two times, I have gotten so much out of the interviews with Ricardo. He is just an absolute wealth of information. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. Um, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Isabel is an approachable, supportive and knowledgeable coach who has helped to take my running to the next level. Working through her program has me feeling more confident to achieve my running goals. I'm really enjoying the program she has set for me, working on strength and endurance. After being with Isabel for a few months now, I can see improvement in my running and overall strength. Isabel is supportive and helps to keep me accountable to stick to my training. Thanks, Isabel. Me again, just to quickly let you know that all of the articles we speak about, um, the links are in the show notes, so check out the show notes. Hi, Ricardo, and welcome back to the Peak Endurance Podcast. No, thank you very much for having me, Isabel. Yes, so you have been on before. It was quite a while ago, um, in the early days of the podcast. And I have to say it was one of the ones that is the most listened to because it was about nutrition, ultra runners. And if there's one thing ultra runners are obsessed about, it's food. So, <laughs> um, and you reached out to me talking about some new research that has been done on um, low carbohydrate, high fat diets. And, and you had some information that you wanted to share with us. But before we get to that, do you want to just remind the listeners what you actually do like why are you the expert on this topic yeah absolutely so um, i'm associate professor ricardo costa from monash university at uh, the base facility clinic um the department nutrition dietetics and food um basically the last almost what 15 to 20 years we've been doing uh research and 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 um clinical practice um in ultra endurance sports i mean that's that's where we all started and it all started from gut symptoms. So 
we noticed that when um ultra endurance runners were were going out to races back you know 20 years ago they there was no guidelines or recommendations so they were coming to us when i was based in the uk uh, regarding you know, what, what should I eat and drink for these uh, ultra endurance events, which was starting off to be more popular. It was it was in the early days of ultra endurance running, whether it be you know twenty four hour track, forty hour track, mountain, uh, multi stage, desert, etc. So it was the early days. Um, so we were the first group um, to actually um, test nutrition status, hydration status in the fields, come up with guidelines and recommendations. Um, and support a whole array of different ultra endurance. I mean, I'm the I'm the lead author of the World Athletics, originally known as the IAAF, um, guidelines and recommendations for ultra endurance nutrition hydration. So um, that's based on again 15 to 20 years of, of of research and observation. Well, um, I mean that's interesting. Like even at the early days of of ultra running, that people were concerned about nutrition and. And I have to say, nothing's changed. There's just more choice, but I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you noticed that that people still have a lot of difficulty in this area? Yeah, because it all comes down to belief, I guess, and also habits, um, and also peer pressure. I guess the there's there's certain trends and cultures within ultra endurance yeah. sports that developed in certain groups, and it's difficult to break from that trend, break from those beliefs. At the end of the day, these are all testimonial. What works for me? Uh, try this, try that. A lot of, a lot of um, ultra endurance athletes are, aren't really going into the, the science and actually looking at what's there and, and using that as the base, using it as the base. It doesn't mean you do it in black and white. You follow those recommendations, but if you need to make tweaks based on your own individual tolerance, then you do so. Um, and of course, what we've noticed over these, you know, last you know decade and a half is that a lot of the beliefs and cultures that people are following are actually leading to some serious high-risk health problems. And at the end of the day, death. Um, wow. And <laughs> to to be fair and to be blunt, um, if you if you don't do things properly, you're putting yourself in a situation where it could be a fatality. And we've seen this. And we've reported this in the literature on multiple occasions. It seems like uh, people are more following the online um, uh, opinion-based uh, text and not going to the scientific evidence-based text. And um, it, it's amazing that, you know, people, it's interesting because people focus a lot of time on, on training their physical body and doing, you know, running, strength work, all these different things, but they never focus on nutrition and yet it can, mm. like you said, can have profound effects if you stuff it up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, an, it's an acute effect. So it could all be fine and, and, and acceptable in training. But when you go into competition, things are taken to the extreme. You push your body more than what you do in training. You are, you're in situations where you might not be thinking properly to do the correct actions. Okay. So it's these acute, rapid changes in in human in, in in human body physiology which would create those health issues that if a lot of people aren't aware of. I mean, I know there's you know renobiolysis and hyponatremia and all those yeah. things coming out, but I'm sure if I if I explain to people um, bacterial endotoxemia and bacteremia and systemic inflammatory response and sepsis, they'll say, "Oh, what? What's that?" You know, yes, that happens every time you do an ultra, and that's so the one that, that if you. Oh, what is 
Right. So what is that basically is that when you exercise, the gastrointestinal tract breaks apart because the yeah. blood flow goes to the muscles, goes to the periphery. So there's no blood flow to the, the gut, gut meaning stomach, small intestine, large intestine, colon. Um, it breaks apart. So basically your feces are leaking into the, into the, into the blood. And the bacteria that's there is leaking in. So the immune system goes into overdrive to try and clear it out. And it does. In a fit, healthy person, it's not a problem. It's actually good because sort of trains the immune system that sort of bacteria and then bacteria and toxins going through. But in an ultra marathon situation where you could be at 24 hours, 40 hours into the race, where you've got substantial amount of bacteria going through, the immune system is now compromised because it's already done the initial attack. There's no more defenses. Then you will be septic. You, similar to a patient that's in hospital will, you know, post gastric surgery with sepsis that needs to be controlled with medication. That ultra endurance runner is putting that themselves in that situation in the field just because of the exercise stress and or not eating properly because there are prevention management strategies that we've done before that we can help with. Um, but that's the situation they're in. Wow, that's, yeah, I mean, I knew that there was damage done to the gut and the gut lining, but I didn't know it was quite that gross. Um, and, and like, <laughs> is, is that also another good reason for resting after your race to allow that sort of thing to heal and repair? Yeah, absolutely. So um, within 24 hours, we see all sort of the markers come back to normal. Uh, but in some situations, so some individuals that might have actual colitis, so clear rips and inflammation of the intestinal lining due to the exercise stress, they might need up one or two weeks of, of, yeah. of recovery. And yeah, every time you do exercise, you could have one or two days, your legs might be feeling fine. But as soon as you go back and exercise again, you're going to get blood flow going to the muscles, not to the gut, and you're going to slow down that healing process of the gut. So it's not, it's not as if my muscles are fine and can go out. Yeah, what about the other body systems? You're not thinking about those. Which is something that I constantly am trying to convince my clients about, just because you feel fine. There's so many things you can't see going on in the body that you need to respect that need to repair. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. All right. So what you actually reached out to talk to me about was um, the interest of endurance athletes in the low carbohydrate, high fat diet. And we mm. hear a lot about that, certainly, you know, in regards to because endurance athletes go slower, you're burning fats, it's better off to eat fats and, and all these sorts of things. And, and a lot of, you know, um, well, it, it seems to me like a trend in a way. Um, and uh, there's been some research on that that you wanted to share share with us to let athletes know. Yeah, it was something that, that again, we found that we weren't expecting. It's actually quite concerning and goes back to the previous discussion of the bacteremia and bacterial endotoxemia and all that systemic response. Um, and this was a, a study that was uh, in collaboration with the AIS. So they do a lot of the low, low carb, high fats, dietary interventions on race walkers to try and enhance their fat oxidation. And of course, you now the summary of their research has found that um, the uh, short or long-term adherence to this diet doesn't necessarily enhance performance. So they, they don't really advise these for those elite athletes. Uh, but I'm, as an ultra endurance sort of practitioner, consultant research, I'm more focused on it and more interested in it from the ultra endurance perspective, because I know that yeah, a lot of ultra endurance athletes do these diets in, in the belief that exactly what you've said, um, don't need so much carbohydrates, I need more fats because of the, the duration 
and time I'm going to be uh, exercising for. Uh, therefore, it makes sense, like generally makes sense to, to, to consume fat so that there's more there to burn. Um, but that's not always black and white, as we've seen. The human body is quite complex and it, it you know, doesn't just work. Given fats, there's more there, it's going to burn more. It doesn't work like that because <laughs> um, there's a lot of, you know, cellular responses associated with that. Um, so I don't know if you want me to just talk through the sort of the general gist of the research and what we found. Um, or... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, yeah, basically, and we can sort of, as things come up, have a discussion on that. Um, firstly, um we we spoke about we said we said you know ultra runners tend to be um uh going more for that um and when we're talking about this we're talking about um low carbohydrate high fat in, in daily um eating and race as well or one are they separate how how would that be oh um athletes do different things so Yes, there's some some uh, group of athletes that generally consume the low carb, high fat diets on a daily basis as part of the training adaptation, and then during the competition also try to avoid carbohydrates in the belief that it's going to reduce their gut symptoms. And then if you get gut symptoms, you have to reduce your workload. You might have to pull out the race, etc. So there's a group of athletes that use these diets to enhance fat oxidation, and then try and avoid consuming foods during exercise because of the gut issues. Then there's another group of, again, of athletes that use these diets in training to create the adaptations, but then uh, consume carbohydrates the day before and during. Um, so to get the best of both worlds, you have your long reserve, slow burning fuel in the background. And then you've got your acute rapid fuel at the forefront and also fuel to maintain blood sugar levels to avoid blood glucose levels to avoid that hyperglycemic and impairments in performance in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So with, with this study, which one did it look like or was it, was it both basically? Well, this was more, in a, it's actually an acute study. It was only six days yep. of low carb high fat, but that was enough yeah. to induce the ketogenesis. So ketogenesis in the blood was was observed and evident. Um, so it was more just an acute um, yep. uh, setting to compare these diets from the gastrointestinal perspective. So it wasn't necessarily fuel fuel adaptation. It was more looking at the gut markers, the um, bacterial translocation, gut symptoms, etc. So, so it was only a six-day protocol. Yep. So what did they find? Did you hear me there? Yep. Hello. Yep. Yes. Can you? Of... Yep. Sorry. So, what did they find? Did they um, obviously it was not so good for their gut as they were um, the athletes may have been hoping? Yes. Yeah, so, what what we found was that um, so there was a a twenty five kilometer um sort of time trial an exercise bout when with fully carbo loaded no dietary intervention or control controls yeah. so you get your baseline data. And then for six days, there was three, actually three groups. There was a high carb group. There was a low carb, high fat group, which was 80% of energy coming from fat. So less than 50% of carbs for the day. Whereas the carbohydrate group was 65% energy avail um, availability from carbohydrates. And then there was also low energy availability. So this, this is targeting more, again, sort of the AIS athletes where they're training a lot and not really eating enough for their, their needs. And 
sort of leading into the sort of the clinical issue of, of REDS, relative energy yeah. deficiency syndrome. So it was just the third arm of the study. But from multi endurance perspective, I was sort of, oh, my interest is the first two, the control and the low carb, high fat. So six days, still in six days, yes, there was ketogenesis observed. Um, and then they redid, they redid that 25 kilometer time trial. And from the gut perspective, what we found was um, even at rest, so even before the exercise bout, intestinal injury, so the actual damage to the cells of the intestinal lining, um, the translocation, so a marker that determines the bacterial endotoxin going from the lumen into circulation, inflammatory responses, so systemic inflammatory responses, which is the sort of the clinical issue which leads to fatality, um, and then gut symptoms. They were all slightly elevated at rest compared to the control, the high carb. And then the exercise bout just made it worse. Mm, so basically from the gut perspective, in terms of injury, endotoxemia, systemic responses, and also the um, uh, symptomology, um, the low carb, high fats all raised um, those markers. So at the end of the day, it was worse. And from an interesting, it was the same. A lot of the athletes avoid eating eating carbohydrates during and going on these diets to avoid the symptoms. Actually, the, the high low carb, high fat actually created more symptoms yeah. in in that group. So, so that's interesting. So why why has that idea perpetuated that it helps to reduce symptoms? It's it's more just general, uh, I guess, uh, normal, I guess, thinking processes that. If you don't put anything into the gut, then theoretically there's nothing there not to tolerate. You're not going to get any yeah. symptoms. But as I said, the human body like, isn't complex. It doesn't all work in that black and white fashion. And I can't explain the reasons why these things occurred. Um, yeah, if you can, in, in layman's terms. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so first of all, um, general gastrointestinal physiology, so for absorption of nutrients, so when we consume proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, they all go into the intestine and they get absorbed into the bloodstream. Now yes. with fat, fat is very unique that if you have dietary fat within the intestine, it actually increases the, the space between the cells. So it creates hyperpermeability. So all the cell, the cells of the intestine are all tightly packed. So it's not just, it's not a big line of tissue. It's cells all sort of Lego blocks all together. And with dietary fat absorption, because it doesn't go in the bloodstream, it goes into the lymphatic system first, then goes to the liver, and then goes into the bloodstream. Um, that creates a situation of hyperpermeability. So the cells actually open apart. So just the natural process, natural process of consuming fat and absorbing it already creates a hyperpermeability in the gut. I mean, the, the I guess the pseudoscience term here is leaky gut or leaky gut yes. syndrome. I don't like to use that. It's hyperpermeability in the clinical setting. Um, but I'm sure this word's being flung around of leaky gut, leaky gut syndrome. Consuming fats does that automatically as part of fat absorption. So yes, of course, you're going to get more injury and you're going to get more translocation of pathogenic agents yes. into circulation, even before the exercise starts. The diet itself will do that. So and is that course, going to make people want to do low-fat diets now? Oh, well, to protect the guts and to avoid the clinical issues, yes, you have to. Otherwise, you're already setting yourself up for gut issues and potential clinical issues during an ultra-endurance event. So maybe but reducing again, fats before the race, is that a possible 
helper? Uh, in those that are on low carb, high fats, is that is that no? Just general, just general. Well, uh, well, just general it wouldn't be just consuming a low low fat, high carb diet because we need essential fats as part of the diet. Yes. Diet, but again, I, I can't I can't answer that question broadly because yeah. everyone's different. So my yeah. response to that is each individual athlete needs to look go and see a sports dietitian to get individual advice. Um, yeah. But just because you're on high fat, high carbohydrate diet, it does not mean that you are not able to burn fat. Actually, actually, another paper we have, Rausch et al., uh, 2022 in Frontiers of Nutrition, um, we clearly show in three different studies, so it's a meta-analysis, a, a meta, uh, metadata paper, we clearly show that those on a high carbohydrate diet, ultra endurance runners actually have high fat oxidation rates because when they go training, so they go for a four hour run or a six hour run or do uh, those long endurance sessions, your muscle glycogen, even if it's full on a high carbohydrate, only lasts you two hours. So you're automatically in a fat burning zone in the last four hours of training. You will inevitably need to be burning fat um, but having the carbohydrates in your diet just provides that protection and that sort of top up of not letting the blood sugars drop so that you can actually train the full session without being too um, centrally fatigued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that um, that all makes sense. So um, from this study, what are the what are the recommendations now that they're saying for for people who are thinking of low carbohydrate, high fat? Right there. So the general the general recommendations from this study, so there isn't any, the study was just the study findings. Okay. But yeah. going back to the World Athletics uh, guidelines for guidelines recommendations for altering endurance uh, running, um, it would be to provide sufficient carbohydrates to be able to cope with your high intensity training loads. Yeah. Then if you're doing if you're doing long steady work. I guess the, the, the word we use is uh, nutrition periodization. Mm. So I guess a long story short is thinking about what your next training session is going to be and preparing your nutrition for that session. Example would be if you're going onto the track and doing, you know, a one kilometer reps um, in the afternoon, of course, the night before and the day before, you're going to consume a high carbohydrate diet in order to fill the tank, in order to push that session hard. Yeah. Um, after that session, have your appropriate recovery nutrition so that you get your adaptations to that session. Okay. But then the next day, if you're going to do a long four hour, very easy, steady run, there's no need to have carbohydrates in the, in, in, in the muscle because the purpose of that session is uh, fat oxidation adaptation. So have your recovery nutrition. And then for the dinner, yes, have low carb, high protein, reasonable fat meal. Um, so you don't fill up your muscle glycogen store so that you can start that session in a depleted state. But then you wake up in the morning and you make sure you do have carbohydrates for your breakfast before you go for your run. So you have some sugar, some glucose in your blood so you don't go hypoglycemic. Yeah. Um, that is it, The focus of that meal is simply just to maintain, maintain blood sugars. You don't go hypo. It's not going to be used in the muscles. More it's going to be used to top up the blood. Go and do your session. Then after your session, Think about, okay, what's the next session coming and prepare for that one. 
So there's no there's no dietary application these days. It's nutritional periodization, um, and it depends on what you're doing next. And yeah, you, I can't provide broad guidelines. Yeah, here. Yeah. It depends on the applicants. I mean, I've worked with multiple ultra endurance runners at the elite level. They're all different. Yeah. Every every person is completely different. I, yeah, there's not one standard particular diet. So, so kind of what, get, what I'm getting is that you, it's it's being sensible about your food and, and working absolutely. out how, yeah, how your body performs best with how much food and what types of foods and basically just experimenting. Would, would I be on mm -hmm. right there? Yes, but make sure you experiment with a qualified profession, in this case a sports dietitian. Yeah. It's gone through five years of training plus an additional one or two years of, of specialisation in sport and exercise that have all that background. So you're looking yeah. at the qualified sports dietitian has seven years of exercise physiology, sports medicine, and nutrition and dietetics training under their belt yeah. uh, that, that understands what's going on. Because at the end of the day, it's all about physiology and metabolism. You need to grasp what's going on there. And then from there, you can apply the nutrition and hydration to that individual. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and um, I guess, like you say, because every human body is so different, that's why you need to um, not just go for what other people are doing. Yeah, oh, completely. Absolutely. That That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. So, yeah. yeah. yeah because you see lots of on, um, you know, on, on social media, you know, this is what this person eats. And then so then people will copy that. But but that's not necessarily going to work at all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can give you a classical example is we've had yeah. almost, you know, over 200 ultra endurance athletes coming into our lab and we actually measure carbon fat oxidation rates during prolonged exercise, you know, all the way up to three or four hours. And every single individual has different oxidation rates and changes in oxidation rates. And that's yes. the way we apply. So, if we're working with an athlete, us at Monash, when people ask, oh, you know, what should I eat? What should I drink? I say, I have no idea. I don't know. I've got to get you into the lab. I've got to see what your losses are. And then I can tell you exactly what you need in terms of carb and, 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 and water provisions. Yeah. And every, every result has been completely different. I mean, some people are at 36 grams per hour. Other people are at 120 grams per hour. Yeah. And then sweat losses, I won't even go into that. Into electrolyte <laughs> losses won't even go. Oh, geez, yeah. yeah. It's so individual. But then, then, you know, even if you're seeing a sports dietitian or, you know, a dietitian, they don't necessarily have access to your sort of um, technology in that regard, but they can still work it out, can they, what you need? Oh, they, they would. So a, they would have access to exercise physiology lab, either uh -huh. through the VIS or local exercise lab consultation or us or there'll yeah. be multiple ways but but um if not they will have the background knowledge and skills to provide some initial guidance but of course to go into it thoroughly you will need yeah. to do all that physiology testing to get that information individually so if we're not going to go you know the low carbohydrate high fat which um yeah i mean i've i've always sort of not been a keen fan of that one um what are your thoughts like on carbohydrate loading and that sort of stuff because 
that's constantly falling in and out of favour and it's hard to keep up. What what do you mm-hmm. see from from what your your work? So with this uh this for training or for competition? For competition. So it go, it goes back to that periodization, so nutrition periodization. So you're going into a competition, yes, you're going to be out there for you know four hours up to you know 24 hours. Um you 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 do want to start fresh, so you do want to start loaded up. So yeah. it would be important to actually load up. You don't have to do the super compensation protocols, which you know, from you know 40, 30, 40 uh, years ago. Um, but ensuring that you are topped up when you start the events, knowing that that's only going to last you two hours. And then yeah. that from there, you've got to ensure that you will you, you have some type of in, intake that you can tolerate that's going to, the purpose of that isn't necessarily to provide the the muscle uh, with fuels is actually more just to maintain blood sugar levels and then ensuring that you've done all your training to have the fat oxidation in order to last you the whole race. So it is like a stepwise fashion. You want to start fully loaded and make sure the high carbohydrate diets are in there. Um, your fat application is already there. It's, it's not going to be blunted simply because you're consuming high carbohydrates. It doesn't work like that. The enzyme function and concentration is already in the muscle. It's not blunted yeah. by any form of, of carbohydrate intake. Um, then from there, come up with a, a nutritional race strategy that you can maintain and tolerate over the period of your race um, and then ensure that you've got those the training load in your muscles in terms yeah. of being able to oxidize to cope with that distance of that event. Yeah. So they go together. Everything works together in a structured way. Now, I remember last time you spoke about, you know, if you were training your gut to, to take food during training to prepare you for your race, and it was quite a large amount. Can you remind the, the listeners what that was? Because I know a lot of people were quite surprised. Yeah, so the, the gut training protocol um, we use 90 grams an hour of two to one glucose fructose ratio, but that was simply to challenge the gut um, in order to help gastric emptying and or increase the transporters in the intestine to get more glucose into the blood. Yeah. So there are your two adaptations, gastric emptying and absorption. Um, but um, that that's just the training protocol. We now, when we run individual runners through our sort of, you know, testing in the lab, when we get their total whole body carb oxidation rates, um, for example, imagine they can only, they can only oxidize 40 grams an hour, then that's their, that's their training zone. So yeah. for example, we normally train at 120% of tolerance. So in this case, we'll, you know, 50, round it off 50 grams an hour during training, but then race at 40 or even race yeah. at 30 in a hot temperature, just so we can reduce that gut burden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, that makes sense. But it, yeah, it also makes sense to, because even in training, you're never going to quite get the duress that your body's under in in race conditions exactly yes yeah yeah but on another example we have some elite ultra endurance runners which can oxidize 120 grams an hour wow so their their gut training we push them 140 grams an hour and then race at 120 or at 100 yeah 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 that's that's a lot (laughs) um (laughs) yeah so um 
so in regards to the, to if if people had been thinking of high carb, high hydrate, low fat, or if they would be listening to this going, but I'm fine when when I when I do that. Do you have any anything you want to say to that? Yeah. Oh, well, with with the find the gut findings of the paper and sort of the the main clinical outcomes, which are the bacterial endotoxemia or the systemic response, um, they attend they are generally asymptomatic. So you don't feel those until until the very end of sepsis. So it'll come on very quick and it's over. It's the classical response to heat stroke. So it's a, it's the same sort of pathophysiology of heat stroke. So it's asymptomatic. Normally the symptoms we feel in the gut when we exercise, if we have a bit of problems, it's more functional. Gastric emptying, gastric um, uh, gastric emptying issues. So everything that sits in the stomach doesn't empty. Um, uh, and or stuff at the lower intestine in terms of malabsorption, fermentation, um, lower abdominal bloating, flatulence, urge defecate, all that, or even um, injury to the intestinal wall and um, uh, os uh, damage osmosis and diarrhea and all that. It sort of runs trots. Um, yeah. So you feel those, but again, they're more functional. When it comes to, again, that's, bacteremia, endotoxemia, systemic response, asymptomatic until it's going to be a serious issue. So food for thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm always a believer in not eliminating any particular food group because I think we need all of them. Um, so, you know, basically you're saying that in the lead up to a race, just eat, you know, a basic normal variety diet a healthy varied diet well into uh, if i if i can give you more general specific recommendations in terms of leading up to the race so 24 hours beforehand ensure you top up your muscle glycogen stores ready for the event just yep. for the first two hours two to three hours um so you're going to have to you consume a high carbohydrate diet of which selecting foods which are low fodmap Low FODMAP is fermentable, oligo, diamonosaccharides, and polyols. These are short chain carbohydrates which bacteria like to like to eat up and ferment, and they cause a lot of GI issues. Um, so selecting foods which are low FODMAP, example, be rice or um, rice instead of some pasta. Uh, breads go for spelt flour bread in, instead of your normal one. Um, certain types of fruits to avoid. And very strawberries, oranges, generally. Okay, apples and pears, avoid. Onions and garlic are big issues, so avoiding those. But these are just examples. I mean, people yeah. have different tolerance. Um, so low FODMAP diets. Um, and then, of course, hydration within reason. So we normally drink to thirst. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're not thirsty, you're fine. That behavior ten tends to pre-event. Pre um, provide evidence of enough total body water ready to start the event. Um, um, so there will be uh, sort of the main features. Another one is fiber, fiber content. Try to keep that down because that will have a tendency to give you some more GI issues. Um, and in the lead up to it, lead up to the race, easy on the proteins and fats, which are more uh, heavy on the gastrointestinal tract. So we do have evidence to show that with high fat, or even high protein foods leading into the vent, it does create more GI issues during the ultra event. 
So that would be the sort of general broad recommendations. Um, yep. Another thing I probably didn't mention is protecting the gut during exercise. So I did mention oh, yes. it all spreads apart, everything goes through. There is one strategy that consistently has been shown to stop that from happening. So again, stop the injury, stop the permeability, reduce the inflammatory response. Um, and that is simply carbohydrate feeding during exercise. So your rest nutrition, make sure small and frequent of something during the whole race. Even towards the end of the race, you're not going to be burning carbohydrates. It's going to be more fat. You're consuming it anyway to protect the gut against uh, these issues. Yeah, and that's where gut training comes into effect. That after a certain period of time, we've seen ultras. They're okay for one or two or three hours. But when you start to go into the six, eight, you know, nine, 12 hours, it sort of seems inevitable. They're going to have gut issues. So that's where gut training comes into play. Challenge yourself in training to then being able to tolerate it small and frequent during the race. And that is the most effective prevention and management strategy for any gut issues during exercise. Um, and when you say small and frequent, and you've said that, you know, when you've topped up with carbs, that's good for the first two hours. Would you recommend even within the first two hours having something? Yeah, well, it, it should be, it should be right from the start all the way through to the end to, pre yeah. to, to protect the gut. And yes, you have to have in the first two hours because it takes time. It takes an hour and a half to two hours for that carbohydrate to actually reach the muscle if the muscle yeah. is going to use it. So if you can if you consume it in the first 20 minutes of your race, it'll only if it does get to the muscle, it's only gonna it's only gonna get there an hour and a half, two hours into the race anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to me not consuming anything and then only when you're feeling hyperglycemic to the yeah, I need to eat something now. Well, it's too late. You've yeah. got to do it beforehand, give it time to actually get into the muscle. It does, it's quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I do agree. Um, and, and I always tell my clients to sip and nibble constantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I guess... The, yeah, sorry. I was going to say the practical recommendations, like the, imagine the 90 grams an hour, small and frequent. Just break that, those over 20 minutes or 15 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, give yourself you know, uh, 20 grams or 30, 20 grams every, uh, you know, 15 minutes or 30 grams um, every 20 minutes type of thing. And I know you said sort of drink to thirst, but do you find that if you're sipping on water or some a fluid, that helps with digestion as well? Yes, absolutely. You have to. So if um, every, anytime you consume something into the, into the stomach, if it's not diluted down to a 10% sort of concentration of nutrient, it's just going to sit in the stomach. So the ideal concentration is six to 10%. So even if you're consuming gels, people do gels and say, oh, it says on the packet, no need to drink. Yeah. Um, no, you do, you do yeah. you have to drink. Otherwise you're just gonna sit in your stomach. So um, go with the scientific literature. Don't go with the marketing of the food packaging, please. I mean, I guess that's the best advice I can give. Yeah. Yeah, listen to the practitioners and scientists, not the marketing uh, crew. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, what about, you know, taking protein during a, a long ultra event? Right. Very, oh, nice question. Um, right. So um, from a gut perspective or fuel perspective, which one are you coming at? Well, from both a gut, I've got answer to. From I mean, to be, fuel, to be honest, no I find for myself, if it's sugary stuff, I struggle I've I've discovered the bacon and egg McMuffin and that works really well for me and I don't get any gastric distress and yet it's got 
protein in it and fat and you know um but that seems to work i mean as you say yeah, yeah. experiment but you know yeah. from a both perspective from you know yeah nutrition and and you know fueling yeah. mm -hmm. well from a from a fuel perspective again it goes back to individual tolerance and individual likes and dislikes again taste fatigue flavor fatigue very big issues in ultra endurance yeah. so you've got to cater for those so yeah, you can't eat your sweet stuff the whole race. Yeah. You have to you have to put some savory stuff in there. So even if you're having small and sweet carbohydrates, you've got to put some type of savory, even if it's you know mashed potato with a bit of salt and a bit of you know uh, soup flavor, whatever you like to do. There's heaps of recipes on that. You no, know? yes, if you can tolerate your bacon egg muffin, that's fine. That's that's you. That's your individual. Yeah, um, that's right. Things that you need to be aware of is that it's going to take time to get through. So it's not. Yeah. It's more satisfying that flavor and taste fatigue. It's not necessarily satisfying the fuel availability for the body. Yeah. So, but both are important for overall performance and getting to the finish. Both are important. You can't just neglect the sensory in the expense of the fuel. You can't do that because they both go together. Um, so that's from the fuel perspective. From the gut perspective, again, our research group have done two studies now looking at protein and amino acids during exercise and all the gut markers. And they seem to be as effective as the carbs. So remember okay. I said consume small and frequent carbs. It protects injury, permeability, systemic responses. Um, so the protein does the same thing. The fat doesn't, makes things worse. But uh -huh. the protein intake, small and frequent during, small and frequent during, um, does the same thing we've eaten we've even just finished a study looking at a, a mixture of amino acids um the amino acids did the same thing but not as aggressive so whole protein foods were actually uh, reduced the injury permeability and systemic inflammation better than the amino acid sort of composition okay. um, so yes if you from a gut perspective yes it does protect also but what we found was again, goes back to your individual response, is most of the participants couldn't tolerate it uh, in terms of uh, um, gut function. So bloating, um, yeah. urge to, to um, vomit, um, belching. So they had a lot of those symptoms with the protein versus the carbohydrate. Um, but again, there was a lot of individual variation. Some people did well, some people didn't. So I guess it's testing it and see what works for you. Yeah, yeah. Now you were saying earlier that you know when the athletes had already gone into ketogenesis that there was some you know markers that were problematic. What about there's a lot of talk at the moment about exogenous ketones to take during racing. What's what's with that then? I sorry, Isabel, I can't respond that because I haven't researched the area. Okay. I, I can't. I wouldn't be able to respond to any, you know, yeah, good, yeah. Um, clear or precise um, uh, outcome. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. It's just that that's this latest thing. And yeah, who knows? I mean, there's so many latest things. I don't know. Or any final thoughts or, or anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? No, I guess the final thought was just for the listeners that are ultra endurance runners, just be mindful of the risks. From yep. the, I guess from the gut perspective of doing a high carb low uh, sorry yeah, low carb high fat diet um, yep. 
And that's, I guess, the best approach to going into ultra, as is in the World Athletics Guidelines and Recommendations, is that uh, nutritional periodization. So think about what your next session is and plan your nutrition and hydration for that session, knowing that um, the based on the training, the muscle will start to adapt itself to the training you give it. So although you're, you might be on a high-carbohydrate diet on certain situations, if you're training for long enough, fat oxidation adaptations will automatically start to occur. So just because you, use, you consume carbs doesn't mean you're blunting fat oxidation. It doesn't work like that. And then, yes, during exercise to protect the gut, the best approach will be small and frequent carbs during the whole event. But again, you need to train it because after a certain amount of hours, it's going to be difficult to tolerate that. And Isabel, as you pointed out, we've also got evidence that small amounts frequent of protein, if you can tolerate it, can also protect the gut as well. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fantastic to, to hear. Um, and and it's a good warning to people because, um, you know, we need to look after our gut because, like you said, it can have serious implications for our health and us for our running as well, basically. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. No, thanks, Isabel, for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I'll catch you later. No worries. Bye-bye.